Welcome to this week's edition of the Vasey View. This is my regular podcast where I explore, as it were, the nexus between tech and public policy. So I go on tour. I've been virtually to France, the Netherlands, Israel, Estonia, talking about their tech policies. I take deep dives into particular sectors of tech, like agri-tech or cybersecurity. And I talk to thinkers about tech, like Ben Evans, or even Tony Blair and Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, and this week, I'm taking a slight pivot, although still keeping to the central thesis, which is it's thought of turning into a book club podcast, because my next guest has written a book. In fact, it's uh, one of many books she's written, but this is her latest book. It's called The Lonely Century, and it's written by Marina Hertz. She's been described by The Observer as one of the world's leading thinkers, and by Vogue as one of the world's most inspiring women. She was the economics correspondent for ITN in the UK as well. She's a thought leader, an academic, and a broadcaster. She has previous bestsellers like The Silent Takeover, IOU, and Eyes Wide Open. And of course, she's written for many of our most esteemed publications like The New York Times, The Financial Times, and I could go on. She also has her own show on Sirius XM, and she's presented documentaries and of course has spoken at places like TED, Davos, and the Google Zeitgeist. So I'm delighted, Narina, that you're with us here today. Ed, thank you so much for having me on your show. In fact, we're recording this while you are working in Tel Aviv. And as I said earlier, I have been to um, Israel virtually, as it were, to explore the amazing Israeli tech scene. So we may come on to that in a minute, because there may be some angles there that you've discovered in terms of what you've written about in the lonely century it'd be good if we came back to them because there are actually <laughs> yeah good so you said to me before we started recording that the worst question i could ask is what is your book about but i have read your book obviously and i know what your book is about and it's a sort of there's a central paradox here which is what i wanted to explore the, and i also get the chance to explain why you're on a sort of tech podcast which is it's about we live in a world that is more connected than it has ever been before. You know, I have thousands of friends on LinkedIn. I have thousands of Twitter followers. I have thousands of Instagram followers. In fact, I weirdly kind of know a lot about people's lives who I never see in person because I see what they're doing on Instagram. There's one in particular person that I've met once and I know everything about her. I know that uh, when she got married, I know that she's having a baby. I followed her life having only met her once and you know started following her on Instagram after that so we have this weird connection but your central thesis is that despite all these extraordinary connections we are lonelier than we have ever been before we're disconnected because I think what you're saying is we've lost touch with what it really is to be connected what it would say was like to be connected 50 or 60 years ago when you lived in a community and you interacted as it were in real life we're interacting now on Zoom, we haven't seen each other for many years. What made you kind of want to write this book about this epidemic, if you like, of loneliness and tech's role within it? Okay, so great question, because <laughs> I'm an economist. So it's not the most obvious subject matter, a book on loneliness for my latest book. But there were really three reasons why I wanted to write this book. Three observations that happened really within a very short space of time that made me get very interested in this subject. The first was my students. About four years ago, what I realized was that increasing numbers of my students were coming into my office and in office hours 
confiding in me that they were feeling lonely and isolated. And I'd been teaching at university on and off for about 20 years, and I had never seen this sort of volume of students who were expressing that they felt lonely and isolated. And when we think about loneliness, we often think about it as being something that mainly afflicts the elderly, but it's actually the youngest who are the loneliest amongst us. So, so my students alerting me to something different going on. In my academic research, at roughly the same time, I was researching the rise of right-wing populism across the globe, of leaders like Donald Trump in the United States, of Marine Le Pen in France, of Matteo Salvini in Italy. And as I started interviewing right-wing populist voters across the world, one thing that kept on coming across from their stories was how lonely and isolated they felt. Lonely in the sense of lacking friends, lacking acquaintances, lacking social support networks, but also lonely in the sense of feeling invisible, unseen, unheard, forgotten, which is, of course, another element of what loneliness really is. So I found that very interesting and an important observation to help explain why so many people were turning to these politicians. And then the third reason why I got interested in this subject, and this relates directly to tech, is that I had bought an Alexa and an Amazon virtual assistant. And I started noting my own interaction with my Alexa and observing that I was becoming increasingly attached to this inanimate object that lives in our kitchen. And, you know, and sometimes when I was at home all day writing on my own, I was go and say, hi, Alexa, tell me a joke or something. So I could see that I was developing a relationship with the subject, which got me thinking about what I came to define as the loneliness economy, an entire economy made up of goods and services really designed in many ways, primarily to deliver connection and alleviate loneliness. And in some cases, actually deliver community. Tech obviously is a significant player within the loneliness economy. So it was these three very different realizations within a short space of time that my students were very lonely, that right-wing populist voters were very lonely, and that I was capable of feeling very attached in an inanimate object, my Alexa, which showed also that there was a market, a demand for products such as this, the fact that virtual assistants, et cetera, were doing were really selling well made me think I really want to dig into this phenomenon. And when I did, I realized very quickly that even before the pandemic struck, we were in the midst of a global loneliness crisis with one in 10 adults feeling lonely often or always, with three in five 16 to 24 year olds feeling lonely often or always, with one in five millennials saying that they didn't have a single friend at all. Shocking statistic, half of children aged between 10 and 15 saying that they felt lonely often or sometimes. I realized this was a huge problem that I wanted to dig into. And yes, part of what I wanted to understand was the role that tech was playing in creating this problem, if it was, and also the potential tech had in being one of the solutions to this problem as well. So that was part of my agenda going into this. Brilliant. Well, there's a lot I want to dig into there, particularly, I think, you know, the kind of central argument I want to kind of explore, which you sort of touched on at the very end there is, you know, tech as a solution, which is, can tech be a kind of supplement to people's lives or does it tip over to become dominant and therefore increase this isolation? And I think there's some certain things you can kind of drill into there, but let, I just want to start with young people and 
your students? Because I'd be fascinated to know when you obviously talk to them about why there, there was a sudden influx of students coming to your office saying, I feel lonely. What was it that had changed, given that you've taught in universities for 20 years? What had changed from, you know, for the sake of argument, the year 2000 to the year 2020 or 2019, let's say pre-pandemic, in these students' ways of living that you think had exacerbated this loneliness? I mean, it has to be, and I know this is a tech audience, but it has to be, and I'm holding up my smartphone as I said, it has to be our smartphones. And why I say this is that actually the data is pretty clear on this, that what we see is really from about 2010 onwards, a real rise in loneliness amongst young people, pretty much in lockstep with smartphone adoption and especially social media usage. Now, of course, Ed, this could have been coincidental or this could have been correlatory and not causal, the relationship. And I think up until 2019, even though we did see these kind of rises in parallel, it was not possible to say categorically that social media platforms were causing loneliness. But in 2019, there was a seminal study at Stanford University, a real gold standard of a study where they had 1,500 students who were told to stop using Facebook for two months and 1,500 who were told to use it as usual. And the researchers monitored what happened to the group that stopped using Facebook and the results were unambiguous. The group that stopped using Facebook was significantly happier and significantly less lonely. And we've seen similar studies replicated now using other social media platforms. Each of these studies have found that time off social media makes people feel less lonely. Now, why would this be? Well, I interviewed you know, many students and young people, teenagers, to try and dig into this as part of my research. And I think there are a few reasons. First of all, and this is not just true of teenagers, and you know, teenagers always remind me when I start talking about them and smartphone usage, they go, what about you guys? Of course, this isn't just true of them, but there is that phenomenon that I call bump belief that others are more popular than you. It's very easy, isn't it, Ed, to look on your social media feeds and think, oh, everyone else has got more followers, more retweets, more like everyone else is having more fun with their friends than me. So in relative terms, it's easy to feel less popular, have less friends. Then there's the amount of abuse that young people especially are experiencing on social media platforms. In the United Kingdom, 65% of students have experienced cyberbullying. One in three women aged between 18 to 24 have experienced abuse on Facebook. And of course, the world in which you're experiencing abuse is going to feel a more lonely world. And then there's the direct exclusion that social media platforms kind of engender, the realization that you're being excluded that social media platforms engender. There was one girl I interviewed, Claudia, who told me about how devastating it felt for her when her friends had told her that they weren't going out after school. And yet she was at home in her bedroom looking at her feeds. She saw them out having fun without her. And she said she felt so excluded. She went and hid in her room for a week. So, um, and of course, you know, there were always cases in the past, you know, in our years when kids were excluded. This isn't a new phenomenon, but I think what's crucially different is that in the past, the shame of exclusion wasn't so public. Today, the exclusion is being broadcast essentially amongst the excluded peers. And also the adult, and this is especially worrying for children, the adult in the um, child or teenager's lives 
is typically not aware that this is going on. So whereas in the past, a teacher might have seen a child not being asked to sit with others at lunch or a parent might have noticed the child not being asked to do something because so much of their socialising has actually migrated to their phones. The exclusion is happening kind of without the adults in their lives being aware of it. And then there's just the, the fact that these platforms are really designed to turn us really into, I guess, kind of hustlers selling versions of ourselves, peddling versions of ourselves, which the market will most respond to. And that, you know, especially if you're a young person, you're developing your sense of self, you know, all the, you're rewarded for getting your likes and your retweets and your follows and your shares, which means that you are often morphing your own self into this more sellable self. And one teenage girl um, in Los Angeles really, um, I think, described very aptly how she felt. She said, it's as if my friends and I were all just living our lives like avatars in a video game. So you're kind of presenting this photoshopped, filtered persona which means that you're often feeling increasingly disconnected from your own self. Just one more thing that I observed amongst my students, because it's relevant to our conversation, is the other thing I had found it, I had noticed, which was different to the past, was that increasing numbers seem to be finding it hard to do group assignments when I was setting them face to face in person. They were struggling with that in a way that I hadn't seen in the past. And I raised it with colleagues. I remember raising it with the president of one of America's most prestigious Ivy League universities. And he said, we're seeing exactly the same thing here. In fact, here it's so bad. We're having to run how to read a face in real life classes for our incoming students because so many are arriving here having you know, spent so much time interacting only on their screens that they've really lost the most basic ability in a room to read the fact that and if somebody's arms are crossed, that means, you know, they're projecting that they're not that with you or, you know, they didn't have this basic kind of emotional intelligence that we develop when we're face to face with people. So these are just a few reasons why when it comes to young people, especially, I think social media does have a lot to answer for. So this is fascinating. So I wanted to kind of move on to talk about your thoughts on capitalism and some of your specific tech policy proposals, as it were, but let's stick with um, teenagers, because obviously in the UK, we've got what is called the online safety bill coming down the road. And it's being mimicked to a certain extent with a European legislation. Canada is looking at this. And the key thing about the online safety bill in the UK is it not only will hold the platforms to account for illegal content, which we all know and understand, child abuse images and the like, but also for harmful content, including content that causes psychological harm. And the big debate in the UK is how on earth do you do that? But clearly, you know, if you're sitting on the, for the sake of argument, on the board of Twitter or on the board of Facebook, what would you be saying to them? Because the other thing I, I keep saying to my fellow legislators, you know, let's not lose sight of the self-help agenda, as it were, in terms of the tools that people can use. And we, and as you alluded to earlier, we are all guilty. I still freak out if I don't get enough Instagram likes. And I see lots of people having a much better time than I am on Instagram. 
But what would you dream of if next uh, semester you're teaching and your students come in and say, oh, you know, I feel so much better because of X, Y, and Z? You know, are there mechanical tools that should change? Should, should we get rid of the light bulb? Is there stuff we can do? Mm. That's great questions. Well, first of all, I do think the UK legislation is actually very exciting and um, positive and really moving in the right direction. And, you know, what's been really interesting as my book's been coming out in country after country across the world you know, what's also interesting and exciting to note is that debates really are being had in pretty much every country that I've been speaking to across Europe. And of course, in the United States now, too, especially under the Biden administration, there are really serious conversations happening at the legislative level, essentially recognizing that something needs to be done. And the UK legislation, I think, is particularly encouraging insofar as it is recognizing and acknowledging that this isn't just about um, the most obvious egregious content being posted, but this is about saying, you know, these platforms have the capacity of creating psychological harm. And we know that to be the case. Is there stuff the platforms themselves could do? You know, and I don't think this is as an alternative, by the way, to no, I agree with you. Strong regulation, because I think, my girl, we've given these platforms a hell of a long time to do stuff and they clearly haven't voluntarily. So we need there to be a really meaningful stick being waved above them. But, you know, other things to be done. Sure, we know that Instagram has been testing not having likes in certain markets. The question is, of course, will people just find something else to replace the blunt metric of like, but will still essentially play that same role so will it be this, the number of comments you have or will it be the number of you know will they just will that be replaced by another metric there are thoughts about more generally could or should the algorithms be tweaked so that hateful mean posts are um, deprioritized and kind of kind of nicer ones are elevated you know i think there's something there but having done quite a lot of research on natural language processing. I know the challenges that are involved when you're looking at text and trying to extrapolate meaning. Sarah's so hot, you know, it can be a compliment in one context yes. and actually be a real negative in another context. So language can be hard for sure because it's so domain specific for, for computers and therefore for algorithms to kind of fix. I mean, it's a bit like the argument with fast food. I mean, do you think the executives on the platform say, crudely, the, the good outweighs the bad? I mean, if I was talking to a Facebook executive now, they would say, well, there are millions and millions of small businesses that are thriving on our platform. And yes, there's bad stuff, but there's a lot of good stuff. If I talk to the executive of a fast food restaurant, they would say, well, we give pretty good nutritious food at a low price point. We don't recommend people eat it three times a day, seven days a week. But if you want a quick, nutritious snack for an affordable price, come to our restaurant. Do you think they sit? Are they genuinely worried about this stuff? Or do you think they just saying, well, let's hold off the government for as long as we can? I think, I think a more apt analogy is actually the tobacco companies, because really we know by now that social media platforms have been designed purposefully to be addictive. We know that they've been designed like slot machines to keep us ever hooked. We know, too, through testimonies, you know, we've all read the testimonies in the books. I'm sure this audience will have as well where executives, where founders are saying, we knew that it was addictive, we knew it was going to do harm, but we just went with it anyway. So we kind of know all of that, which is why I think 
that tobacco is a more apt analogy and why regulation is going to be needed. Because I'd say, sure, there are cases when it comes to social media of the LGBTQ kid in Idaho who wouldn't have met people like them in the little rural town where they were living, but, and thanks to Facebook, have found their tribe. Sure, there are those examples, we know about those, but net, these platforms have a lot to answer for. And net, especially when it comes to children who are forging their sense of self, you know, they really have, they are playing a worrying role, which is why I go so far as to say that addictive social media should be banned for children, for those under the age of consent thereby really putting the problem back to the social media companies and saying, okay, you design something that is not so addictive. You prove, the onus of proof is on you. You prove that this isn't addictive. You come back to us and you know, come up with a better project with all your brilliant engineers and brilliant brains who can work on this project, and then we'll give you permission. I certainly do think the kind of technical solution should obviously be pushed back on to the platforms in the sense that, you know, it's for civic society to say what social norms should be and then it's for the tech platforms to answer them. So I don't think politicians should be afraid of regulating. When, when I was a minister, I was always told, you know, don't go there, you don't understand tech, you're an idiot. But my view was that's not my job. My job is to say this is what society expects and it's tech's job to sort it out. I want to jump around a bit. I think I'm going to end with your views on capitalism, but I want to pick out one particular policy because I think it that you talk about in your book, which I, goes to my kind of issue, as it were, which is the debate between does tech supplement and support or does it dominate? And this is your idea of a robot tax. I come from the kind of school of thought that thinks robots are not going to kill humans and eat the world. And there are two types of robot. There's the robot that they will do the clerical task in a business. And I think that's a good robot because the person doing the clerical task, it's unbelievably boring. And if you could get a robot to do it so you can do more interesting things like interacting with customers and being a real person, that's a good thing. And then there's, say, the cliche of the robot in the care home, which comes up and has your chat, your sort of Alexa, Alexa on wheels for people in a care home. But you're worried about the rise of the robot. Well, I think that there are two kind of different points that, relate to what you're saying. One is the rise of what we might think of in what I call contactless living. You know, what we saw, of course, even before the pandemic, we saw increasing numbers of people shopping on Amazon, you know, ordering their food on delivery, doing their yoga on YouTube with Adrienne. But during the pandemic, obviously, we've seen this massively accelerating. What we've seen is that, you know, take up of online living, contactless living has really accelerated at a rate that wouldn't have would never happen as fast. It was the direction of travel, but it wouldn't have happened as fast. You know, in many ways, this is a good thing. And definitely in terms of frictionless experiences, contactless does deliver. But I do have concerns on this front, societal concerns, actually. Mm. Firstly, because, you know, we're doing this conversation on Zoom and it's good. And thankfully, we've had Zoom during the past year and a half. But I think we all by now feel that face-to-face interaction is higher quality. Importantly, from a societal perspective, even just a 30-second face-to-face exchange in a cafe with a barista makes one feel significantly more connected to others and happier. Secondly, I think there is a problem in a contactless existence. The more we migrate to doing stuff virtually, the use-it-or-lose-it problem. So my students who were struggling with face-to-face interaction 
as a society, if we migrate more to virtual, you know, there is a societal problem about will people just be less good at interacting in person? And that has problems. And I think there are also implications for democracy here, because at that moment in the real world yoga studio, when we think about where we should place our mat and being careful not to downward dog in someone else's face. <laughs> at that moment in the grocery store, when we see the elderly woman and we stop and we help her reach for a jam job, those are the moments in our day-to-day lives when we practice civility, reciprocity, thinking about others, not only ourselves. And those are fundamental skills for inclusive democracy. So I worry that if we continue this direction of travel to an ever more contactless life, trading off convenience for connection, we increasingly may get bad or ill-practiced at those skills. So that's one thing about the direction of travel of tech. The other is robots. You're absolutely right. And I look at robots a lot in my book. I have a whole chapter, Sex, Love and Robots. Which you do, talks- yeah. You know, everything from Alexa to um, to sex robots. We could do two minutes on sex robots. That'll, that'll keep people interested. Because I gather there are now male sex robots as well as... Yes, I mean, it's all... Henry. Have you met Henry? No, just, um, just the female equivalent. My mind boggles. I lead such a sheltered life. But there's some very disturbing ads for some of these um, sex robots. The most disturbing one was one that I saw where, where it was a man in all these kind of idyllic bucolic settings with his sex robot friend. So, you know, at a picnic with his sex robot, you know, watching a sunset with his sex robot. I know it does sound strange, and obviously this is extreme, but the idea that a robot can be your friend, I think, isn't an extreme idea at all. I see it with my connection with Alexa. My two-year-old niece, the other day, my um, sister-in-law was making greeting cards for the family, and she turned around to my niece, Emmy, and she said, um, who should we do a card for next? And Emmy went, Alexa. Hmm. So, you know, children who are growing up from age dot with these devices, they're not going to differentiate as clearly as we do between a virtual uh, or a social robot, especially, and a human. And we see this, of course, in Japan, which is ahead of the game here. That's kind of where I think, is that a problem? Because... You know, it's well established, for example, if you, if you put pets into a care home, people live longer. I mean, I'm putting it in very crude terms. So anything that encourages a social interaction, whether it's mechanical or, or a pet, is that a problem? So from an individual perspective, absolutely not. And I'm actually very excited about the potential for so, that social robots have, especially when it comes to elderly care. And here in Israel, I met with a startup LEQ that has a robot specifically designed to help with elderly people. During the pandemic, they shipped thousands of these LEQ robots to Florida. And the testimonies of elderly people, you know, who said, I would have felt so lonely, I would have felt so isolated had I not had my LEQ with me. So I actually think there's a very positive and exciting role for tech here. From a society's perspective, however, were we to choose robots? over humans, that's when it gets problematic, which isn't inconceivable as robots get more sophisticated, more intelligent, more emotionally intelligent, more emotionally intelligent than frankly, some of our friends. And, you know, because again, it's partly to do with the skills that we need as a society. Robots don't demand reciprocity of us. Robots don't demand civility. Robots don't demand that we think about them. And so that's that's part of my problem. So 
So I'm excited from an individual perspective. I do think they have a role to play, but we as humans need to see the advent of robots in these as providers of care and compassion as really kind of laying down the gauntlet to us to deliver ever more than the robot can. And then we talked about robots and work. So robots taking our jobs, which I do look at as, again, I also don't think they're going to, what was it? Kill all our friends and eat all our babies. Meet all our babies. <laughs> I think I said eat the world or whatever, but anyway. No, I'm not so apocalyptic, but I do believe that robots are going to actually transform the workplace in the most radical way since um, industrialization and have huge ramifications for jobs and also, um, and which will play out politically as well, given that the first cadre of jobs where we will see the most significant losses will be lower skilled, more blue collar jobs. In California, I met Flippy, the world's first burger flipping chef. From an employer's perspective, of course you'd want Flippy in the kitchen. This is a chef who never goes on vacation, never calls in sick, always uses the correct spatula for raw meat and hot meat. From Flippy's co-worker's point of view, well, it's hardly someone you're going to have banter with at work, and he might be taking your job, Flippy or his friends. So I am concerned about the dislocations and actually um, tying in with my research on right-wing populism. What we see is across the world, it's actually one of the correlates for right-wing populist votes is levels of automation in the immediate area of the voter. So the higher the levels of automation, the more likely residents of that area have been devoted for right-wing populists. So, you know, because they felt abandoned, unseen. So I think governments really, and I know this is a policy audience as well, governments really need to be thinking, I think, much more seriously than they have been about the dislocations we can expect and preempting them and putting in place measures to deal with them. One of which potentially is this robot tax that you alluded to. I'm with Bill Gates here, who has mooted a robot tax in the past himself. You know, the idea is essentially that owners of capital are relatively disincentivized from replacing humans with robots, or at least not given the current advantages of hiring a robot, of employing a robot rather than a human, as in they don't have to pay national insurance tax, they don't have to pay kind of a whole host of um, costs that would go with a human employee. So so at least not making it so advantageous. And, you know, you might think, well, how can anyone do this in a global world where if other countries are not going to be imposing it, you know, well, we're back on the general arguments about lack of how do you act singularly in a global world. Interestingly, of course, with the latest G7 announcements on corporation tax, you know, we are seeing under the Biden administration a reinvigorated kind of desire for multilateral cooperation on some of these fronts. But I think what's interesting is that the first country in the world that has imposed a robot tax is South Korea, which is actually one of the most advanced robotics countries in the world, recognising the problem and actually doing something about it legislatively. That is very interesting. And I uh, have a lot of sympathy with what you're saying, actually. And it sort of takes you back to the 1980s and Margaret Thatcher. And I'm a supporter of Margaret Thatcher. And she did a lot of good for the country but there's no doubt that the kind of one of the big mistakes and gaps was not 
moving in and supporting workers whose jobs were going to disappear because they were working in industries. And funny enough, we had Mark Carney on the podcast who was making this point. This is an industrial revolution, but unlike previous industrial revolutions, it's moving at, you know, 100 miles an hour, you know, and it's happening very, very quickly. So I do agree with you that there needs to be much harder thinking into what, how you support people whose jobs are changing so quickly. But that sort of goes actually to your thesis within the book. You know, there are two kind of theses here. What one we've developed in this conversation, which is which I love, which is about we are forgetting how to interact with each other because of tech. And so when I slightly thought your point about shopping locally and using your local shop, you know, I was thinking, well, fine, but my local shop is sustained by also having being able to sell its goods on Facebook. But your point is not really support your local shop to keep it open. It's support your local shop so you learn how to talk to human beings again. But you also talk about capitalism in the round and you allude, obviously, there was the business round table announcement last year, American business saying there's more to life than shareholder value. You talk about the need for a greater welfare intervention. You talk about a better measure of national wealth, which we have tried in the UK, moving from GDP to general wellness. And you've talked about the need for capitalism to be more compassionate. I mean, how can we, as it were, reset Capitalism. I mean, we're, we're recording this on the day that uh, there's been this leak which shows that certain wealthy individuals in the United States paid no income tax. Now, I know that's a, there's a nuanced argument within that. But how do we kind of get back to, it's a bit of a cliche, talking in the 70s where the executive payout stripped the workers' pay by a factor of 10 as opposed to a factor of 350 as it is today? I think back to, I think, is an important turn of phrase that you just chose because now, I want to be clear, my message is not an anti-capitalist message. Yes. What I'm saying here is that there was a time when capitalism and care were much more closely aligned. In fact, of course, the founder, the forefather of free market economics, Adam Smith, alongside writing The Wealth of Nations, wrote the theory of moral sentiment in which he talked very clearly about the importance of community the need to regulate big corporations, the importance of compassion and ethics. So right from the start, there was this you know, idea that the free market you know, was the best engine for innovation, which I totally believe it is. I mean, I cut my teeth working in Russia in the early 90s, and I don't need any convincing that you've got, <laughs> to, got to give that role to the state for sure. You know, the market is amazing engine for innovation. Totally get that but also need that it's not a mechanism for distribution, that there is a role for the state and for individuals, of course, to to play. So this is about reconciling capitalism with care and compassion. It's also about recognizing that really, before pretty much the 1980s, there always were different versions of capitalism, European capitalism, Asian capitalism, in which relationships, different balance of power between state and government, business played out. And it's really only since the 80s when we saw this very dominant model of capitalism, neoliberalism, take hold. A model which promised that the tide would raise all boats, thought that the market would be able to raise living standards for everyone. And of course, you know, we the market has proven to be you know, an, an amazing vehicle in addressing kind of absolute poverty levels across the world. But when it comes to income distribution, we know that it really since the 80s, we've seen a kind of increasing gap between rich and poor, um, which in terms of loneliness, for example, does play out insofar as 
everyone can be lonely, rich and poor. And currently in the United Kingdom, about 50% of people are lonely. So that shows it's going to cover all um, income brackets. But we do know, for example, that if you're poor, if you're on a low income, if you're unemployed, you're more likely to be lonely. But neoliberalism, not only affecting income distribution, but also affecting the way we see ourselves. And I think this is the important point to get our heads around, that really what has happened is that over the past 40 years, we have increasingly come to see ourselves as hustlers rather than helpers, as competitors rather than collaborators, as takers rather than givers, that we've increasingly come to focus on what's in our own immediate self-interest rather than what's in our collective interest. And that's created not only a lonelier, more disconnected world, but also a world that is more fragmented and fractured. And so that's that's the challenge. The challenge is how do we, sure, there's a kind of question about redistribution and you know, ensuring, especially as we now come out of the pandemic and we think about how to build back, you know, how do we build back better? And, you know, recognizing that in this process of rebuilding, yeah, it is fair that those who have benefited the most, you know, do pay a greater share of the reconstructing society burden. That is, that is fair. And I think most people would agree with that principle. You know, but it's also about how do we come together again? How do we reclaim the notion of a common good? How do we acknowledge that ultimately we sink or swim together? Maybe the pandemic has played a, ro- a part here because you know we, it's been a collective, something we have faced collectively. You know this collective trauma we have gone through, mm. and you know, maybe it, in the same way that after the Second World War, the National Health Service was founded in the United States. After the Great Depression, Roosevelt initiated the New Deal. You know, maybe this is another moment in history that we can use to reset and change course. And if you look at what the Biden administration is doing, of course, you know, they are actually instituting the most radical um, reform program in the United States that we've seen since Roosevelt. And I think there is an appetite for this. You know, I think there is an appetite for this amongst um, population. And I think businesses, I have heard businesses talk the talk of corporate social responsibility, environment, governance, sustainability for many years now. But something does seem to be different now. I think the convergence of the global pandemic and then social movements, Black Lives Matter, Me Too, the looming climate change crisis, you know, more in companies' minds and people's minds, I think is suggesting that if ever there's a moment for a reset, for capitalism to reconnect with community, for a more yeah. relational rather than transactional form of capitalism to hold the moment is now. I agree with you, but I think there is going to be a terrible battle before this prevails. I think you only have to look at what's happening with the Republican Party to know that there's going to be, it's going to be a, a battle. Uh, I hope it's not a physical battle, but it's going to be a battle. I've detained you far too long. I We haven't had time to talk about your thoughts on the gig economy or volunteering, but I wanted to end briefly because you teased us at the beginning because you're in Tel Aviv about what you've seen in Israel tech and you talked about LEQ and its robots. So I just want to end on a 
well, Light and Night has been a wonderful podcast, but I just a few quick thoughts about the Israeli tech scene from Norina Hertz's perspective. Have you come across interesting companies? Have you have you sat down to dinner and been served by a robot? Have you taken an auto- autonomous taxi? <laughs> I haven't been served by robot, although all the restaurants are all very high tech and people are ordering their food on the waitress types your order into a tablet, which goes directly into the kitchen. And that just seems the norm now in restaurants here. You know, this is a country where innovation is at its core. You know, it's a country that kind of, you know, really from its earliest times, you know, innovated in agriculture in initially and creating essentially a desert in, into an oasis and now really applying the same ingenuity when it comes to tech. So lots of kind of exciting innovations here for people who are listening and who are not aware of it, you know, do look into what's happening. Maybe two additional Israeli companies to give shout outs to. One is a company called Ven, which is actually a co-working and co-living space. Now, I think Post-pandemic, we are going to see a massive increase in appetite for such spaces, which were obviously put on hold during the pandemic, but really speaking to the isolation and loneliness people feel, as well as to the changing nature of the workplace. I I found Ben a particularly inspiring version of co-working and co-living, partly because of their philosophy in their co-work living spaces particularly. Now, one of the challenges co-living spaces have, and it's the challenge any business that's looking to deliver community has, is how do you create an authentic community? How do you deliver community? And you know what? I'm not talking here about what I call we washing. So just affixing we to something and assuming that this is going I haven't to- heard of we washing. This is good. I like this. <laughs> Assuming that this one is just going to deliver community. So I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about authentic communities. And the founder of Ben, he, um, there was something he told me that really struck home. Ben has really, really high levels of um, members saying that they come to Ben and as a result feel significantly less lonely. I think it's like 75% of members, they track them on all these things, say that they feel less lonely. And I said, why you? You know, everyone's providing all these services. I've looked at all these co-living spaces. They're all providing workshops and events and cinema hours. What are you doing differently? And he said, well, our philosophy is if we build it, they will come. But if you build it, you will stay. And I think for anyone who's thinking about how do we deliver community, there's a really important lesson here. This is about empowering, whether it's your employees or your customers, or as a government, your citizenry. It's only when we co-create the future that we really feel part of it. So that's one, just one small lesson from my findings here in Israel. Brilliant. Well, you did say two, but I'm not going to press you what the second one was. But um, <laughs> funnily enough, I'm due to interview shortly Matthew Barzen, the former uh, US ambassador to the UK, who has published a book indeed on new forms of leadership, which is exactly what you've just described. Oh. So you're, you've segued into my next podcast, but you on your own have been an absolutely wonderful and brilliant guest. And thank you so much for that, for the reason of tech policy and how you see the world changing. I do. I think your thesis is highly compelling. And I think that uh, more and more people need to talk about how we need to not forget how to interact with each other. So I think that's really important. Thanks, Narina. Thanks so much for taking the time on your trip to Israel. 
Thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for listening to this episode of Avesi View, a production of Kindred Media. Kindred.